song has confused everybody. That's all right. Um, so uh, first to, uh, I think, Alan, we need to go the gain down just a little because there's an echo. We should have spent more time on this, but sorry. I got a new microphone head. Um, yeah, test one, two, just a little bit lower. That's All right, we'll go with that. Um, it sounds no different. So uh, back to the bulb, you might remember this from before uh, that we, we dealt with uh, the fact that, uh, you know, light and darkness. And uh, in today as we open up Matthew, there's an issue of value uh, and who's valuable, what's valuable. Take the filament in a bulb. Right? The, this, these filaments, I, I don't know what they are, but incandescent bulbs have tungsten filaments, and Alan, I need to be a little higher. Thanks, buddy. I know. Sorry. Just a little. T yeah, there you go. Perfect. Um, and a, a tungsten filament is worthless. You know, it's uh, tungsten, if you found it in the ground, is no, it's not pure. You know, the only things you find that are pure in the ground is something like gold or something that doesn't react. It's inert. But tungsten, you'll find, is some kind of an ore it's not very valuable. In fact, uh, in the whole scheme of things, it's pretty worthless. So, but however, say that you were trapped in a dark cave somewhere and you were lost and there was no hope and you were lost in this darkness for days and you were pretty sure with no hope of food or water that you were going to die. And then as this, you've given in and you're sure you're going to die, that all of a sudden you see a light. If down the end of that tunnel a light went on, oh my God, how valuable now is this bulb? And why is it valuable? It's not now, if you were saved by somebody who had this bulb and, uh, and then you took it later on to a pawn shop and say, hey, this bulb is worth millions to me, right? It saved my life. No one cares. The filament is still worthless. And that's what we are. Now, the analogy is not going to be perfect, but you and I are worthless. It's true. We compare ourselves to each other and say, I'm a little more valuable than that guy, but really what we all are are filaments that are worthless. However, when God pours his life into us and then energy by the spirit, by the word, by the value that God has shown you to be, then you actually can do things that are good, are valuable, are divine. You can even discern what is good and what is evil. And a lot of people can't do that. And that's because God has put value into you. Now, here's the problem with all Christianity, is that we, after God has used us, and we know that we're made new and that we have a value that God has given us, we start to think that we're valuable. We start to look at ourselves and, our, and as people, and we say, you know what, I'm worth something. And, and then pride sneaks into your Christian life. 
or perhaps it's always been there. And you cannot live the life with pride. Um, everybody has tried it. Every believer has tried it. And we can't do it. You know yourself. Uh, we cannot do it. And that's what we're going to look at today. It really is the opening of Matthew's gospel. Um, yeah. So let's just get right into prayer. And uh, let's open up in prayer. Let's be thankful uh, that God is going to impart to us this wonderful gospel uh, that is going to teach us so many things about Christ and about us. And, uh, and so with humility and reverence, we will learn so much. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that through this gospel, we will learn of the one that you have given us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is King, Savior, God, and man. Thanks to him, we have what we have. Thanks to him, we are what we are. And thanks to him, we can live the best life. Eternal life is meant to be lived, lived now. And we can live that life if we learn, Father, as you will teach us, to not depend upon ourselves. And to depend upon you totally. We know that this does not mean let go and let God. It means that we are intelligent and wise. But in the wisdom that you give. We are strong, hard workers. We do what you call us to do. But it's in the power that you give. We focus on that and do your will. And therefore, Father, we will experience the best life. We thank you for that. We ask, Father, that through your spirit we would be enlightened and that we would lift up our voices right now in joyful singing, or as some, part, some passages say, joyful noise. <laughs> All right? We don't have to have good voices just to have the joy of you in our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Oh, no. 
is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Now get. Uh, Two main subjects are discussed by Matthew in the early chapters of his gospel. The early chapters, we mean chapters 1 through 4. And this is the birth of the king and his qualifications as king and Messiah, and also the preparation for his ministry on earth, which starts in chapter 4. And we have the first discourse or sermon in chapter 5. In the lineage of Christ is what Matthew opens with. And, you know, none of us are all that excited about genealogies. uh, But um, this one is indeed very important. And there's quite a few of them in the scriptures. So God is actually a fan of genealogy. Hold on, let me get something here. There I am. I got to see myself up there. Sorry, let me just sit back and watch. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, no one thought that was funny? There is something. I, I got it, Alan. What did I change? Oh, I forgot. I forgot. Hey, I can do this one. Hold on. I can do this. It's You have to hide it under the pulpit because in their genius... In their, there. There we go. Two different TVs bought it months apart. Maybe, yeah, many months apart. Year, maybe a year apart. Exact same remote works for both. Brilliant. Anyway. The lineage of Christ is his, is, uh, you know, his family tree. Uh, it qualifies him as a child of Abraham. Uh, it qualifies him as being from the house of David. And it also qualifies him as being born of a virgin, which is hinted at here uh, in the lineage. However, uh, and it's going to be, it's hinted at in the lineage in a marvelous way by Matthew. And then right after it, he says it plainly that he was born of a virgin. And that's important. So we have the prophecy of Isaiah 7, uh, 14, that a virgin would be with child uh, from the line of Abraham. He's a Jew and also from the house of David, which is the royal house. Uh, It still doesn't make him the Messiah, except actually the virgin birth actually does, right? Um, So before we get into that, what I want to start with today is uh, the meaning of this. And and what I mean is the meaning to us. Matthew is writing this to Jews. We're very confident about that, that Matthew's writing to Jews and he's convincing Jews that who would say, well, if you say Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, is he born of Abraham? Is he from the house of David? You know, what, where is his kingdom? Uh, all of that. And Matthew in the genealogy is really saying to Jews that he's from Abraham, from David, born of a virgin. 
And for us, who are not Jews, certainly not in the first century, and we're you know, Western, Western Gentiles, who uh, we already believe all of that. So can we just like skip it? Or, or is there a meaning to this that pervades all generations and all times and all peoples? And in fact, there really is. Uh, so, <laughs> if you've ever had your family tree done, I have not. There's no need to, because uh, we kind of know all of us Shagrus from Ireland were, you know, I don't think there's any kings or nobles in our line. But you never know. Uh, some family trees don't have a lot of branches, you know, they go kind of straight up. But, uh, and, and in the case of Jesus' family tree, all failures. I mean, the best one of the lot is the one that Matthew centers on, who is David. And, of course, he's going to say, hey, as he continues the genealogy, David had a son who was Solomon, and Solomon was from whom? And we say, well, Bathsheba. He doesn't include Bathsheba. And in your New American Standard, they include the name Bathsheba. They shouldn't do that. At least it should be italicized. Matthew doesn't write Bathsheba. Matthew writes her who was of Uriah. And Uriah is not only a Gentile, but Uriah was murdered by David. David put a hit out on him and murdered him. Which brings to, hey, wait a minute. Solomon is a child of adultery. Yeah. So this great king David, who is a great king, he's the greatest of kings in all of Israel, the greatest of Jesus' ancestors is a sinner and a mighty one. So in Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. So what does your family tree look like? You've got a lot of heroes in your family tree, a lot of kings. There's a lot of kings in Jesus' family tree. How many of them are good kings? Actually, the one to whom the prophecy of the virgin birth was given, who is King Ahaz, who was a horrible, horrible, idol-worshiping king, he's here in Matthew's lineage. They're all here. So are. There's so many bad characters in this list. <clears throat> so what I want to do first, before we get to the, the genealogy, is to look at us in light of this. Because everybody in Christ's line is basically a nasty person who doesn't live up to really anything. I mean, we say, well, David's the greatest. Yeah, but by what standards? By the standards of heaven? If we're looking at the standards of heaven, where are we all? We're all at the bottom of the barrel. Some might be a millimeter higher than another, but we're all pieces of tungsten. And, you know, that's what we are. None of us can boast or brag about anything. This is a true meaning in this genealogy. Because we're all here. Now, as it builds up, it's he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. And then it gets to Jesus. And all of a sudden, the verb changes from, it's the same verb, but now it's in the passive. And instead of he begat, it's she was with child. She, her. It's a feminine pronoun. She was. Mary's not here. The name Mary isn't listed. Joseph is. 
But Joseph is described as the husband of her with whom was with child, whose name was Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all of a sudden we go from active begetting to a passive being begotten, which Matthew will write was by the Holy Spirit. And so this is not an active thing between Mary and Joseph. It's a passive thing in which, and therefore the birth of Jesus is completely different from everybody else on the list. There's 39 begats here. And one have been begotten. Or have been with child. And it sets him apart from all the others. And so what about after Jesus? That's another great question. Why does the lineage stop? I mean, Matthew writes 60 years, well, not 60 years. After the, birth, after the death of Christ, he's about 30 years after. Well, of course, Jesus didn't have any children. But, you know, if we're going to have a king in Israel and Jesus dies, well, wouldn't maybe his brother takes over. And who's his greatest brother? James. And so you get King James. And you get the King James Bible. It has nothing to do with that. That's a different King James. That's a different James. But why doesn't the line go on? How about Jesus' nephew? Did James have any children? The line of Judah, the line of David, stops. It stops. There's a reason why it stops. It goes on no more. Because it would just continue with sinners. But as soon as it comes to the one true humanity that God has desired, the lineage stops. And all of us are on the list of sinners. And all of us, therefore, are worthless. Sorry to break it to you. You're worthless. In and of yourself, you're worthless. So let's look at ourselves as worthless. In a world filled with worthless people who have no value really in and of themselves. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, and I hope you know, you're, I know you guys are taking that in the right way. When I say worthless, it doesn't mean that we do nothing. It just means that in light of the divine value of heaven, none of us have anything going on that's of any value. 100% depraved. Born this way. Left to ourselves, what are we? Destined for hell. And going to create hell on earth. But most, a lot of humanity, <clears throat> and I just want to highlight one idea that humanity has come up with over and over again, and it's very prevalent in our modern society, is the progressive idea that we, mankind, can get along just fine without God. And we can actually create within our world some kind of utopian value and without God, of course. And it's a world in which, well, you know, for this to happen, to do it without God, you cannot adopt any value from God. So whatever God's law says about do unto others as you would have them do unto you, golden rule, uh, don't steal, don't murder, don't, you know, all of those, don't lie, uh, don't commit adultery, all of that has to go because those are all from God. So we have to find a way to get to a place where we've created a perfect society and that we don't need God or his values to do that. And so to accomplish that, 
we very, some very uh, brainy people, or so they think they are, they've always been, it's not just now in the universities throughout this land and throughout Europe, who are trying to devise a way, or think they have devised a way, in which mankind can have a utopia, of which anything of value that you say is of value is actually qualified as, well, that's your opinion. So if you say, well, you know, I think this is valuable, you say, well, they say, you know, that's good for you, but I have my own value system. And actually, we don't call it value because there is no value. And that it's just, what is it? And it all becomes impulse. Uh, And so it starts with something like this. A world without God's law. A world without, and God's law is value from God. It's the value of things that have come from God. God says this is good and this is bad. God says this is valuable and this is worthless. And so we throw all that out. And if we do throw all that out, we throw out what it means to be human. Because humans have always done this. And we're held accountable by God to it because he's our creator. And as we try and distance ourselves from him, we are making a world in which we become less and less human. And we can see this progressing. That's what's called progressivism because the progression is away from the old and unto the new. And the old doesn't count anymore. It's too old. Progressivism has actually taken over the universities and seminaries, the theological department of universities, in which they would not count the Gospel of Matthew to actually be historical. There's much of that going on. Which they say, well, these are more myths that the, that the apostles came up with to teach principles. So they want to teach a principle about graciousness, so they make up some miracle that Jesus did, but he never really did it. They, make up, they want to teach the principle of kindness, so they make up a miracle that Jesus did, but he didn't really do it. You can't take all that stuff literal. I mean, come on, we have science after all. And this is, you know, again, we take away what it means to be human. Here's an example. Now, you all know who this is. He's going to be our subject here this week, actually. But this is David. This is Michelangelo's David. And this, I've never seen it. I long to someday, but see it in the flesh or in the marble. Um, And it's absolutely a beautiful masterpiece. Now, Anybody who disagrees that it's a beautiful masterpiece, I can't, you can't really say, well, you have your opinion. I say, well, there's something wrong with your opinion. And I, I think that we could all say that confidently. The reason why I took this picture is because as you get close up to David's face, he's angry. You know, you don't know, we wouldn't normally recognize this. That, and also, he's turned to the side as he's actually the rest of his body is relaxed. And he's got his sling, but his head is turned towards his prey, who is that big goof Goliath in the field. And he's, he's, he's intent on what he's about to do. And so all of that together means what? It's a beautiful form. Magnificent, in fact. But is that my opinion? It depends. It depends on how you look at it. Maybe it's just a hunk of marble. Or maybe it's something more. 
But what about in life, right? What about in our spiritual lives? Am I supposed to just be good because, yeah, God told me to and it's the right way to go? Or is there something valuable to goodness? Some would say, well, yeah, there's something valuable to goodness. You might get rich if you're good or popular or liked or admired. And uh, that's value to you, but, you know, that's not actually itself. If there is value in the thing itself, it shouldn't matter what it does for me. And this was what God wants us to discover about all that he tells us to do. Everything that I say do or don't do has beauty in it, value in it, is profitable. And I get to discern that. If I agree with God, then I'll want to do that magnificently. And if I do that, then the, the worthlessness that I am has now tapped into the value of eternal life. And I'm living it now. Right? It's meant to be lived now. That's why I'm not waiting for heaven to do this. You are the light of the world, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your what? Good works. And glorify my Father in heaven. Why are they good works? Why are they good? Who says they're good? Certainly not the progressives. The abolition of man is the idea that statements about true value and beauty are only emotional states of the mind and they're unimportant. To be human is to discern. We're created in God's image. We're to do this. It is God's will that we all do this. To know right from wrong and do right. Is one, it's one thing to know right or say that you do. It's, another, it's a far different thing to do it. And to say no to wrong when, when I'm tempted to do wrong. And look, this could be anything. It could be you just flat out wasting your time with something that is of no value. There's a lot of that around today. We can do it more easily now than we could ever could because of technology. That we could waste our time with worthless, worthless things. But people have been doing it forever. Uh, we can discern beauty from the despicable, value from worthlessness. We are designed for this. And now that we're made new creatures in Christ, we are able to do this through him through the supernatural power of God, the Holy Spirit, within us. All right? So as you're following this lineage, you've got a promise that starts with Abraham. There was a promise given to Abraham. And then the next interval is David. There was a promise given to David. And then at the next interval, all of those de the descendants of David and all in Judea are carried away by the Babylonians to Babylon where God destroys their city, and then, what? Well, the lineage doesn't stop. It keeps going. Well, there must be a plan, right? If after we all get carted off to Babylon, but then comes back in the lineage are guys like, then it, the, the second guy after that is a guy Zerubbabel, which you might have know his name. He uh, was the governor of Judea after the captivity. And then we run into a bunch of names no, one's ever, no one knows who they are. They're not in the Old Testament at all. We don't know who they are. We don't even know how Matthew knew who they are. But they're there 
And then they end up with Joseph, um, who is the husband of Mary. What a progressive world or people fail to see is that important things merit approval and unimportant things, well, actually important things merit approval or disapproval. And we are to do that. And from ourselves, if we're just the tungsten wire without, from heaven to us, the ability to discern what is good, what is evil, what is, what is right, what is wrong, and to do those things, then I, I can't possibly do it, and I'm lying to myself if I am. So you can see how absolutely detrimental pride is to the spiritual life. Because in pride, I'm not turning on the switch. I'm saying I can do good without the switch. Meaning that analogy. I can actually do what I want to do. How many, how many times have you bragged about yourself? Bragged about your accomplishments, your intelligence, your whatever. How many times have you and I pursued that which we wanted and did not care? for what God's will was. And we've all done it. But what happens to our lives when we continue down a path like that without any repentance or correction? We don't live the best life. We don't live the life that Christ said was the abundant life. Now, interestingly, if I may stick with the progressives just a little bit more, they always get stuck in a hole which, you know, you wish they'd stay there, which they actually do. But to say that my system is the best, which is what they say, they're actually saying a life with no values is the best life. But when you say anything is best, you're saying it's better than others, and that is putting a value on it. So you can't get through life without a value system. You can't. You know, and this is like Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, the French philosopher Rousseau, um, and all of these guys have taken by the universities and other places of learning and jumbled together to make a system of thinking by which we're trying to really get rid of God and make mankind happy. And no one really cares if mankind is happy, by the way, when they buy into this. They only want their own position of power by which they can rule over others. And it always turns out to be that way. Be that as it may, uh, they cannot, if you throw away what's right and wrong, it's not just right and wrong here. You're also throwing away the ability to see that which is beautiful, that which is valuable, that which is worthy, that which is appropriate, that which is wise. Yeah. And those things take the skills of wisdom and power that come from God. And you have been made to have them. Now that you are a born-again new humanity, your life can be one that is filled with doing things that are beautiful and wise and appropriate at the right time. Living the life that is godly, that is of God of eternal life in our own lives. And how do we get it? How are we to attain the abundant life? And you cannot. Because alone we have nothing. We're worthless. 
That's why I picked this progressive idea. Plus, I ended up reading Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis a couple of weeks ago. And, and it's, so, it's a very short book, but so incredibly valuable. Uh, the book opens up with uh, this, um, you know, two guys that are looking at a waterfall, and one says it's sublime, and the other one says, yeah, it's okay. And, you know, the question is, does it matter how you write? So if it was written in literature, because literature can be good or bad, can it not? Absolutely. Same thing with video. Same thing with how you use your time. What your eyes look upon can be valuable and beautiful. And if it is, it will always do well for you and do good to you. But we're fully just, we're, it's all around us, especially now. Screens are everywhere, <laughs> even here. All right, so um, how do we attain it? You cannot. But you have to know that you're nothing and worthless. And this is a great key that we learn from this genealogy. There's only one human being who had worth. Only one. And in this, you'll remember, you're to look at all others as more valuable than yourself. How are you supposed to do that if you think you have value? And I, of course, I mean alone. Without God, where is the value that comes from fallen mankind? Where is his goodness and importance? It's nowhere in him. So let's think of that. So this preparation of Matthew one through four leads us to the Sermon on the Mount. What does the Sermon on the Mount open with? You can go there with me. I don't have it in my notes, but put a bunch of glass next to me. I'm definitely going to break it. All right. What's his first word? Five three. Matthew five three. Oh, I didn't have you turn anywhere yet. Sorry. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Now, Luke has it, blessed are the poor. We're going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does it mean we all have to give all our money away? It doesn't at all because we know that this poorness, Luke does not have in spirit. In Luke's account, it's blessed are the poor. Uh, you can't. You have to take it literally. If you start playing games with the Word of God, you come up with all kinds of stuff that isn't there. That's called eisegesis. When you put into the Word, you're supposed to exegete, take out of the Word. And blessed are the poor means what? You don't own anything. You don't. You say that's mine. Really? I mean, yeah, here on earth, you have the deed to it, whether it's your house or your car, or your stuff or your money. And yes. We need property rights here on earth or there'll be chaos. We need those things here on earth. But this isn't our kingdom, is it? We live under those rules. And if we didn't live under those rules and obey those rules, there would be chaos. But what Jesus is talking about here is a rule of heaven. And, and the rule of heaven of which I am a citizen. I own nothing here. It is not mine. Do we possess even justice? 
He says, uh, I don't have the headings here in this Bible, which would be helpful to me, but I, I want to hurry through this. I cannot even look upon another woman to lust for her. What does that mean? I, not only can I take her as an adulterer, of which there are a few of those in Jesus' line, by the way, but I can't take her as an adulterer, nor even in my head, in my thoughts, can I take her in my thoughts. That means that even for sexual fantasy, I don't own other people. I own nothing. Jesus said, don't make vows in this Sermon on the Mount. Don't make vows. The vow was like, so what he said was, you vow in the temple. And he said, God owns the temple. You vow in the gold in the temple. God owns the gold in the temple. You vow in your own body. And he says, God owns your body. And so he says, when you make your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, stop making vows because the things that you're vowing on, you know, back in New England, we say, on my mother's life. That was a very common thing to say, which meant that I guess if you were caught lying, you would have to go kill your mom. She's not yours. And that's the point that Jesus makes. You don't own anything here, so therefore you can't vow on it. You can't even vow in the earth or anything because I own it. He said, don't take revenge. That means you don't own justice. You don't own it. I say, well, I have the right to. What You know what that person did to me? I met a guy, uh, I talked to a guy a few weeks ago who was abused as a child by his stepfather, sexually abused. And he's a Christian man now, and he said, I learned that I had to forgive him or I couldn't move on. And he went up to his stepfather and said, I forgive you. And he said, it was right from my heart. I didn't hold anything against him anymore. And I, was, I marveled at this because everybody would say, you have a right not to forgive that man for the evil that he did to you. But you see, what God says to us is that you cannot hold on to judgment in your heart because you own none of it. And if you do you will be in the wrong place in your heart and in your soul. You have no right. You have, I don't want to forgive them. Forgive them, God says. Because in that is freedom. We try and grab hold of the things that don't belong to us. We become slaves to things that are not ours. Love is not even our own. So he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, Right? But hate your enemy. But he says, I tell you, because God, he says, sends his son and his reign, son, S-U-N, and his reign upon the wicked and the good, upon the evil and the good. Uh, we don't even own love. It's his. We don't have the right to say, I can give you my love and I won't give you my love. You don't even own it to give. It's his. He has graciously given it to you. You see where he's going? This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. So you can take, therefore, the preparation of this genealogy of all of these unworthy people, worthless people, really. Only good they ever did what came from God if they did any good. Why is David good? Because <laughs> he loved the Lord with all his heart. That's why he was good. He lived by faith. That's why he was good. God blessed him. That's why he was good, because he lived by faith. And we're all in that same family. It's not just his family tree. It's every family tree. 
all of us are worthless. And so no more pride. All right, so we're worthless. So what do we do? Nothing? Well, here's the first thing. Next thing. You can be a humble nothing or a prideful nothing. The nothing is constant. The other two, that's your choice. Uh, if this lady takes, if you know, I, I noticed it a little bit after, but the road to the left is sunny and the road to the right is dark. Light and darkness. You and I get to choose. But one thing you must know that you are nothing. And pride will put you in a darkness. You will always be a son of God, a daughter of God, but you will in pride be not living this life. You cannot. You don't own anything. You have nothing to be proud about. Can you see how this all fits into how you actually can love those without value judgments? That you can actually do good to those who upon whom you have given no value judgment. Do you see how it sets you free? What are you proud of? You know, we all have it. I know I have it. That means you have to have it, right? So what do we do? Well, chapter 6, pray. Chapter 6, we give. We pray. And then I love how he says this. When you pray, where do you pray? Alone, in the closet. It doesn't have to be a closet, but you're not to do it in front of others to impress them. He opens chapter 6 with, beware of those who do their good before others to be noticed by them. You, when you give, he says, don't sound the trumpet. What does that mean? Honor is not yours. I own honor. You own nothing. Honor goes to the one to whom it deserves it. Not me. I don't own honor. But people say, you know, wow, I saw, uh, uh, going back to James. King James, he's not King James. Jesus' brother, one of his nicknames was Camel Knees. Because he spent hours on his knees praying. Now, uh, if James did that to be noticed by others, that's prideful camel knees or whatever you want to call it, right? That, it, that is a, it is an awful thing to do. In fact, we're, we're told to beware doing it. So what if I say, well, I, when I pray, I have to tell everybody how much I pray. I have to tell everybody. I have to tell others how much I know about God. You know how much pride is in the church because of knowledge? Because most of the world doesn't know a lick about the Bible. All you have to do is know a little and you can walk around this whole world telling people, wow, you're really stupid and I'm smart because you know a fraction of the Bible. Pride, and it saps you of this life. Pray, give, uh, when we need supply, right? What do we do? We, we, what do we seek for first? Seek his kingdom. So go look at Matthew 6.19. He says, when you fast, put on a happy face. Which, you know, we don't really fast. It's not, we're not commanded to fast, but to them, fasting was worship. And therefore, in whatever way we worship God, not even worship belongs to us. 
We say, you know how much I worship God lately? Like, if you're starting to be proud about yourself. I love, uh, it was the, the first I ever read uh, someone who talked about this was Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, Christian Ethics. And um, he said, you know, when you're... This is going in and out, isn't it? How about that? So at least we... Right, it's a brand new microphone. There it goes again. When you're praying, you can be out, you can like go outside of yourself. Like here I am praying, but over here there's a, a ghost Joe, and he's watching Joe pray. And he's saying to Joe, wow, you're so good at this. Look at you. You're using good words too. No one prays like you do. You're awesome, Joe. God, angels in heaven must be like, oh, Joe's praying. Let's all listen. But can't you do it? We all can do it. Same thing when we serve. Serve God, serve the church, serve anybody. We say, well, look at us. Does anybody notice? You own, I own nothing. Not even honor do we own. We don't own worship. We don't own love. We don't own anything. We're all in that lineage of a bunch of jerks who are sinners who deserved nothing. And in Jesus' line, all of those kings, none of them deserved it. And then one comes who does deserve all. And he dies for all the ones who deserve nothing. Matthew 6.19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in light of what we just talked about for 30 minutes, that speaks differently to me, at least subtly differently, than what I have seen it to be before. My treasure needs to be nowhere here and not in me for sure, meaning me alone. But what God has put in me, what he does through me, therein lies my treasure. So, and Christians have fallen into this trap. We say, all right, we give up all treasure here on earth, fine, but I'm going to have crowns and medals and all kinds of stuff in heaven that you're not going to have. I've seen people do this. And I'm going to have all these crowns stacked up in my head a mile high, and you're going to have nothing. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be great in heaven, better than everybody. Be right next to Jesus, and you're going to be way far away. You won't even see him. You heard this before? I have. But what is the treasure of heaven? What is it? Yeah, there's all those. But 633, what does 633 say? Seek first his kingdom, right? And his righteousness. That's the treasure of heaven, his righteousness. That's nothing that you uh, would brag about, because then it wouldn't be it, would it? That's self-righteousness. Uh, that's nothing that you could really uh, market or, uh, you know, 
reveal to somebody as a beautiful thing that belongs to you. It does not. It doesn't belong to you. But it was given to us. These feeble little sheep that we are. And so in Matthew 16, go, jump forward to Matthew 16, 24. And then we'll jump to the lineage. And Jesus, 16.24, And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's been a lot of theories about what this means, take up your cross. And yeah, and some of them are better than others. But I, for me, the cross is death. It, it's just the death. It, it does... Christians suffer at different levels. So if you say it's a certain kind of suffering, but not all Christians suffer at the same amount or in the same way. Some Christians don't seem to have a lot and some Christians seem to have a lot more. Uh, but you know, it, therefore what this is, if, if the cross to Christ is to give up his life, then that's what it is to us. And that, this doesn't mean I have to become a martyr. There's a whole bunch of Christians in like the third century who after no, the fourth century. So the third century, around two from 200, when, when Christianity really got persecuted in, in the Roman Empire in certain pockets, there were a lot of martyrs. But then things eased off a bit. And then in the next century, a lot of Christians wanted to be martyrs because the martyrs were elevated. They were promoted. And people were like, well, the best way to glorify God is to die for the cause. And so they wanted to be martyrs. But that, you know, that's your own plan. You don't even own how you're going to die unless you take your own life. What do we own? Nothing. Of what value do we possess? Nothing. Nothing. Even the things that we have, the money we have, it's not ours. Um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about we'll talk a bit about this that as we go through the gospel. That the reason why we don't, you know, you say, well, none of it's mine, and blessed are the poor, so I'm going to give everything away. But then, you know, you can't pay your next mortgage, and your family's on the street. And uh, what did you accomplish? You you have to function in this world according to the rules of the world. However, that when God puts in you the heart of love and graciousness, you are exceedingly so, according to his will. But you, you and I both know the difference between hoarding for myself and being gracious. And, gracious, and again, it's not so I better be gracious because there's a crown in heaven for those who are givers. It's I will be gracious because I see the value in graciousness. Everything that God does has a value and a goodness and a worth to it. The riches of heaven is really what it is. And you and I have it. And while we're messing around with the, the mud of the earth, when we could be messing around with the gold of heaven. <clears throat> so he says in verse 25, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's clear. So in the lineage of Christ, go to 116. 
Well, we might not get to the lineage after all that. We're going to do the lineage this week. So you know, my plan is to, to take this gospel in chunks so that we don't get too lost because it's a big gospel. You know, section by section. We'll probably spend a, a week on each section. Um, so 116, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom... I said Mary's not in the lineage. It goes to Joseph. I, I think I said before Mary's name is not here. She is, obviously. Uh, the father of Joseph the, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. See that by whom? That's the first passive of this <coughs> Greek word genao. Genao means um, to beget or to give birth. By whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah? And the, who is called here is not in any way to put any doubt in our minds that, well, he's just called that, but he's not that. Uh, this it truly means that he is called by verbal, uh, by heaven itself, the Messiah. Now, if you kind of hold your place here, not just kind of do it, and, and uh, go to John eight thirty one real quick, because this passage is too big to put on the board. But just a sentence or two from this, and you'll see here how that Jesus had to deal with people, as are all still today, in which they think that their value comes by another way, or that the worth of their lives come from another source other than God in heaven. So, uh, 8.31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have yet been enslaved, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Which is, you know, their, their understanding of history is, is pretty sparse here, and plus they're under the rulership of the Romans at the time. So it's difficult to discern, but. Uh, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, what is their argument? We're descended from Abraham. We're not slaves. Um, now, you see, the Matthew's lineage, Matthew's lineage starts with Abraham. And Abraham unto Isaac, unto Jacob, uh, were they slaves to anything? Well, the patriarchs weren't slave to any government, but boy, were they slaves to sin. Abraham's a sinner. Isaac's a sinner. Good Lord, Jacob. There's a lot written about Jacob's sin. His sins. So look at verse 34. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And there we all are. That's all of us. Slaves of sin. The religious leaders in the crowd think that through the lineage of Abraham that they have solved the problem of sin. So we'll, we'll continue to look at this passage this week. They go on to say, well, Abraham is our father. They tell him that we're not born of fornication. Now, a lot of scholars think that's a jab at the virgin birth of Christ, which everyone would have known about because it was assigned to Israel. And that Joseph wasn't his real father. 
they don't believe that he came from the virgin birth, so they think that you know Mary got knocked up before before marriage. And so we're not children of fornication. And yet in Matthew's genealogy, there's this woman, Tamar. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute so that she could bed Judah. Uh, and uh, they had, she had twins who were in this lineage. I mean, she had a rough birth. She had a rough uh, birth, birthing. I always look to you, Christopher. I'm, I'm so happy when you're in here. I can look to you and say, what, what is that called? Or should I say that? Uh, and she says, no, don't say that. All right. <clears throat> Tamar has Perez, uh, in Tamar's birth, one, the hand comes out and the midwife says, oh, that's the firstborn. And she ties a scarlet cord around it. But then the hand goes back in. His name is Zerah. And the other twin pushes Zerah aside and pops out first. He's Perez. And the line goes through Perez because he comes out first. Can you imagine that birth, ladies? You had it easy as far as I'm concerned. Not that I know. Uh, All right. And then they say to him in this passage, you're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? Think of that in terms of lineage or genealogy. So this... um, Freedom, right? How do we get free? What is freedom? He says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But what is freedom? Certainly, I'm not born in it like they thought they were. They thought they were born, since I'm born of Abraham, I'm free. Well, what about you? We're born as Americans. We're free. Yeah? Or we're whatever. I was born rich. Some people are born in slavery still, but what about all through history? Millions and millions of slaves born into slavery. Are they free? Or if they, even if they are born free? See, freedom comes from truth, and truth is the ability to discern. I can be a born-again believer, and because I am living for the world and the flesh, I am not living free, even though I have been set free. Um, basically, as uh, one uh, pastor I know loves to use this, I, I love the analogy that I'm sitting in a cell and the door's open and I won't come out because I'm living in the flesh. And I don't know. Or maybe, maybe I do know what's good, but I don't have the courage to do it. You can know what it is and not do it. And then you're not free. You have to discern value, goodness. You know, what's right? Not just right, what's beautiful? What is sublime? What is beautiful? What is val- What is worthy? All right, back to Matthew 1. Just a couple of lines of this. I'll get you out on time. Uh, first, when we do this unit, which is the genealogy, we have to make sure we keep it in the context of the the larger unit that it's in. The largest unit that it's in is the book itself. And we want to keep it in view because we'll, we can uh, get ourselves buried in um, you know, one particular small part and not see the true fruit of that part. Which There's a reason why Matthew was giving us this genealogy at the front of his letter. And we want to make sure we remember that. Uh, The first unit is Matthew 1 through 4. It's all the preparation. First, the qualification of the king. Jesus qualified as king and Messiah. 
and also the preparation for his ministry, which starts in chapter 4. His ministry starts in chapter 4 is also his uh, temptation in the wilderness uh, by the devil, and that's important as well, all in this unit in preparing him. In, within these subunits, there's genealogy, there's the virgin birth, there's the flight to Egypt. There's actually the return to Nazareth, and, but not yet. And then after, yes, the return to Nazareth, then the baptism, then the temptation, then the ministry starts. And all of those parts are part of one whole presentation and preparation. And if you know that, you can see each part not as like, you know, just alone, but part of a bigger picture. Now, it's marvelous that after he gets baptized, the heavens open, right? The dove descends on him, which the Holy Spirit, like a dove, not the dove, but like a dove, and then the Father says from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately after that, we have him, Matthew has presented immediately after that, the devil's in the wilderness saying, are you the Son of God? Not are you, if you are the Son of God. From heaven, this is my Son. Well, that sounds cool. And then, if you are the Son, turn these stones into bread. Right, so all of, is he the son? Well, it starts with the genealogy. And all of it together ties together this one who is our Lord. Uh, yeah, so first a, a few lines. Uh, Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, the first words are, it says the record, but the first words are the book, Biblos. Uh, Biblos, would it be? Biblos, Genesis. And, and just, that's a Genesios, or Genesios. Uh, here is the Greek word Genesis, or Genesis. So it's the book of Genesis. If we you know, take it a little. Into, if we uh, transliterate into English, it's going a little bit too far. But is this the book of Genesis? Well, there's many genealogies in the book of Genesis. In fact, there's, you could organize the book of Genesis around the genealogies. And uh, in Genesis 5.1, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is word for word the same, Biblos Genesios, which is the book of the genealogy. In Genesis 5.1, it's the gene generations of Adam. And Jesus is the last Adam. This Adam gets tempted by the serpent. He fails, as you know. And Jesus gets tempted by the devil and passes wonderfully. So this, uh, we're pretty sure, because Matthew's writing to Jews, that he's taking these two words right out of Genesis. And he wants them to see that it's from Genesis. That this is the book of the generations of, well, what does he say? Jesus the Messiah, right off the bat, this is the uh, Christos, which Hebrew is Mesh Meshiach. Uh, this, they all know what Christos means. 
This is not to them a name like it's become in Western civilization. This is a title. Christos or Christ means Messiah to all Jews. And uh, the whole world speaks Greek at that time. They know what Christos means. They don't speak Hebrew. Some of they speak Aramaic. Some of, a lot of them do, but everybody speaks Greek. And when, they, when this is stated as Christos, this means as what Matthew wants it to mean, that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice, and we can just, we only have time for this one line, but the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he's going to start with Abraham, go to David, and go from David to the deportation, and go from the deportation to Joseph. Um, so one thing we can grab from this just at the start here is that he takes them out of order. He doesn't say son of Abraham, son of David. He says son of David, son of Abraham. And you know, the reason for this is very likely that Jesus is going to present himself to Israel as the son of David. Now, the promises to David are to the nation of Israel. It is specific. And Jesus said, I came to the people of Israel. And so when Jesus comes to the people of Israel, we know, and as we've looked at the intro of this gospel, they rejected him. So when they reject him, what does he do? He says, the offer of the kingdom is taken off the table to this generation, but the kingdom program goes on. And as the kingdom program goes on, it is offered to all Jews and Gentiles. So at the end, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, go into all the nations of the world, all the nations, and make disciples of them and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the nations. And what's the promise to Abraham? First covenant, Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. To you, from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Matthew here starts with David specific to Israel. Israel is going to say no. Then it goes to the Abrahamic covenant, which, of course, it always was meant to, to all the families of the earth. And who's in this lineage? Gentiles. There's Uriah. There's uh, Rahab. Clear, prostitute. She was, ran a brothel in Jericho. Uh, there's Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite. And there's not supposed to be women in genealogies, but he has them there. And there's Uriah. Yeah, he's not. He's a Gentile. And uh, so, you know, uh, Matthew here is going to spread it out here. Uh, so, yeah, again, so much to learn. Uh, the, the thing that we want to focus on here just today before we leave is what we've looked at today is value. Again, for my illustration, the value of the tungsten alone is worthless. But if you're in a dark place and you need light, then all of a sudden this becomes most valuable to you. And we once, even if this is the most valuable, it's the only light you have. Say, say you're Thomas Edison and it was your first successful light bulb. You know, This thing would be worth millions, billions of dollars. Don't lose it, you know. But in actuality, it's worthless. And so are we. No matter how much God uses you to do, you will never in and of yourselves become this valuable commodity. Only Christ has value. We're all in the lineage. 
we're all the sinners in the lineage who are beneficiaries of his grace. So, you know, you need to ask yourself, I need to as well. You can do this in prayer if you want the fastest, most purest answers. What are you valuing, guarding, promoting, polishing? I mean polishing as I want to present it to others to impress. That is not of God. Because what all of them, whatever they are, are hindering your experience in walking in this life. Every one of them are hindering your experience. What are you valuing, guarding, promoting, or polishing that is not of God? And in an honest talk with God, you will find out the answer to that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the guidance and direction that comes from truth. Thank you for this gospel and for all that you do for us in terms of your grace and love. All of us are sinners. All of us uh, are worthless, Father, without you. Uh, We have no value at all. But you do, and you have made us new in the image of Christ we will be. And therefore, Father, we uh, see our value in you. And now that we do have that through you, that we can live this life that our Lord said was abundant. So, Father, we ask that your spirit would open up our hearts to the true things that we have heard today so that we would uh, apply those things and change, be changed into more and more into the image of your son. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, time to take our offering. Let's pray for the offering. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give as your believer priests. We give in worship of you. And uh, though these things do not really belong to us, Father, they belong to you. But you give us the ability to give in graciousness because graciousness is a valuable thing. So we ask, Father, that through your spirit, we all give in graciousness of our time, our money, our, our, our lives in the service of you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Oh, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Uh, the final moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who's listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you haven't believed in Christ, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ because in Him and Him alone is salvation. And I mean eternal life with God in heaven. And that is because we're all sinners. He is the only one who was not a sinner. Not only that, He is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. God in the flesh, who took your place and mine on the cross and died for our sins. He not only died for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Since he was judged for our sins, you can have life, eternal life, through him by faith. 
uh, Bible is very clear. God is very clear that salvation is by faith, not by works. So God doesn't ask you to work anything or to earn it, but to accept it. And you will be saved if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As God gives him to you, just put out your hand and take the gift by faith through Christ, in Christ. And thank you, Father, for all that you are and all that you do for us. In Christ's name, amen.